The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to today's show. We're going to have a great show today. Hopefully it'll lighten up your afternoon and uh, we'll focus on um, recovery and the humor that we can find in recovery. And I'd like to introduce to you today George McDonald is our guest. He's an accomplished writer, actor, and comedian. George has been sober for over 23 years, and he spreads his recovery message through the gift of comedy, and that is a gift. George has performed with such stars as Jay Leno, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Dane Cook, and Dennis Miller, just to name a few. George is also a playwright. Some of his works include At the Funny Factory, Waiting for Whitey, and Whistling Past the Graveyard. George is a member of the uh, Dramat... You're going to have to help me with this. Uh, Dramatist Guilds of America. Thank you. Actors <laughs> As a playwrights <laughs> union. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Actors Equity Association, Screen Actors Guild, and the American Federation of Television and Radio Artists. Welcome. Thank you for taking time to uh, spend this hour with us, George. My pleasure. Thanks, Mary. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So what came first, uh, the comedy or the writing? Uh, actually, uh, the comedy came first. It's kind of funny. I, I, I don't think if I... Uh, I would have become a writer if I didn't get into recovery, actually. I think they're very connected. I don't think I would have had the patience to sit down and write anything other than a note, you know. Uh, but uh, as I got uh, uh, sober, uh, I just developed a lot of that stuff um, uh, from mostly from doing stand-up. That came first, and I was always one of those guys who was interested in acting, like legit acting. But I didn't know any actors. I knew two guys that were comedians, and I was hanging out at clubs with them and kind of watched for, I'd say, well over a year. At that time, it was back in 1979, and there there really was only one club in Boston at the time. Next. Uh, And uh, that would, uh, Comedy Connection actually was the first club, and then the Ding Ho, and then Nick's. And uh, I would watch the uh, watch these guys on stage, and after about a year of watching it, I thought, I, I think I could do that, you know, and I kind of got curious, and I figured I'd do it one time, and that would be it, but having such an addictive personality <laughs> to begin with, once I did it, I said, oh, i got to do this again, and, you know, and it just sort of went from there. I never really thought I would end up doing it for a living for so long, but, you know, that's, that's what life is what happens when you make another plan, you know. What a great way to make a living! And, you know. Yeah, yeah, it, it can be. It's it's a lot of fun. It's well, it's one of those jobs when it's a lot of fun, it's a tremendous amount of fun, and when it's not, it's really not. <laughs> so you know, you get what you pay for, I guess. <laughs> I just have I, one question. Waiting for Whitey, would that be Whitey Bulger? Well, it's it's oh. actually it's a fictional Whitey, but it's influenced. Okay. It's 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 Irish gangsters in Boston, but it's obviously influenced a lot by that story. But it's not meant. That's not meant to be a docudrama or anything. It's a that's a a black comedy, pretty a lot of gallows humor. And uh, I'm a guy that grew up in South Boston, so I sort of you know saw a lot of that stuff growing up anyway. And um, 
I, but I wanted to find the humor in it somehow or other. And to me, the, that play is actually, that play has been produced in Boston and out in Los Angeles at the Elephant Theater. And, uh, uh, to me, that play is really about ambition. It's not, because to me, what I always took away from that stuff was the parallels between reckless ambition, whether you're a gangster or a CEO. And we can see how that sort of played out in, the Fine on the world there. stage <laughs> lately <laughs> between Enron and the collapse of the economy and all the all the greed and how what it can do so it's not really a whole lot of difference in some ways <laughs> well you've been sober over 23 years um can you tell us a little bit about um what your life was like before you got sober oh sure yeah uh well i mean it was you know i was one of those weekend warriors and initially when i started drinking just you know Drinking and drugging, that was something I did on the weekend. And, uh, you know, of course, it's cunning, baffling, and powerful, and insidious, and patient disease. And just gradually, before I knew it, uh, you know, the weekends weren't enough, particularly when I started working in nightclubs. Once I started doing that, I mean, that's kind of, uh, I certainly drank alcoholically and drugged like an addict before I ever told a joke on stage, that's for sure. But once I sort of fell into that, it was the perfect, uh, job to enable me to um, continue, you know, pedals with the metal, sort of drink and drug the way that I always wanted to do. You know, it's, it's a job with a lot of that built right into it. So, you know, there's always a, there's alcohol right on the premises where you're working. A lot of times you, you go to one of these one-night shows and the guy who was paying you, your employer for the night, he thought, well, we'll, we'll get these guys, you know, kind of lit up. Then they'll really be funny, you know, which may or may not have been true. I don't know. Sometimes I guess it was true. Sometimes not so much. But uh, you know, you could see that sort of that sort of lifestyle and that job sort of, you know, it's it's almost it's not necessarily part of the job description, but it's certainly you know nobody. It isn't like you're working, uh, you know, putting together nuclear weapons. Nobody would want you to show up half in the bag. You know? <laughs> so it's a little little sort of a different situation. And oh. uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say about the um, the airline pilot in in England. Oh right, yeah. Point yeah. Oh, Point oh four, um, which I guess is okay in America, but you have to be point oh two in London. So uh, yeah, so I guess you can show up half in the back. Yeah, I don't want to be on that guy's plane if I no, could help it. No. <laughs> you know, that no. really doesn't sound like a good idea to me. No. But if you're a comic and maybe you know, what's the worst thing that can happen? You maybe screw up a joke, and you know, no one's really going to get too upset about that. <laughs> but but uh, for me, what happened was it you know it worked it worked until it didn't work, like they say, and then it's sort of because it is you know it just it's progressive, and before you know it, what happened with me is, you know, now I'm I'm in a club six, seven nights a week, and now I'm, you know, I'm lit up six, seven nights a week. And uh, towards the end, it was it could become pretty apparent. I was starting to black out on me. You know, my life was turning into a bad movie. I was blacking out on stage and trying to figure out. You know, I basically came to the conclusion: well, am I going to keep drinking and drugging, or am I going to do my job and sort of. You know, as well as just I could see how it was affecting people around me, everybody that cared about me, the girl I lived with at the time, her, she had a son, and you know, I could see, you know, I mean, I was, I'd just kind of go to work and then maybe not show up for a day or two, you know, so just putting people through that, that was like sort of not really fair to anybody, and, and that sort of got me to look at my own behavior and got me to go, go to, you know, uh, to first pursue recovery, and that, that sort of was the impetus for me. Um, and when you talk about you use uh, comedy for your recovery message, can you give us an example? 
Yeah, well, I always, you know, I mean, I actually have jo- It's funny because I used to do jokes about drinking and using drugs when I was active, actively drinking and using drugs, and I sort of had to revamp my act an awful lot, and I would tell jokes, you know, like jokes that would sort of advocate that behavior became jokes that were sort of, you know, I try to hit it right down the middle, actually, now, whereas I talk about that stuff, and the people that are still active come up and say, hey, I really like the jokes about the drinking, and you can see, okay, this person's half-lit right now, and you also have people come up to you after the show, the sober people, and say, oh, are you a friend of Bill's, <laughs> you know, or whatever, because they can spot, you know, sort of language or whatever that I might be saying, they they pick up the message, too, so, you know, for example, I have a joke, I say, I've never been to detox, but they did send me a written estimate, you know, and anybody, that joke works Either way, you know, whether you're drinking or you're not drinking. So. Right, right, right. Yeah, and I always try to, I sort of try to play that stuff like that. Not that my whole act is necessarily about recovery, but I do have some some stuff that relates to that. You know. Well, I think there's so much healing that occurs through laughter. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, as, as we were saying before, it's a, I think, you know, dealing with life on life's terms, it's really important to have a sense of humor and to be able to... Uh, uh, to laugh at oneself certainly that's that definitely helps to not take myself so seriously you know um, and and that that's helpful and there's other people that don't take me so seriously either so they keep reminding me uh you know and it's uh it's just a better way to run my game i find you know it's just, there's just no question about it as as i always like to say i've been drunk and i've been sober and sober is better you know there's yeah. just <laughs> no contest you know, there's so much about resilience, and I think that um, the people who are successful from any type of illness or trauma are the people who are, have the most resiliency, and certainly a sense of humor contributes to that. And I know over the years in working with people, there are sometimes, you, you know, people experience things that are so absurd and can be so painful, but at other times they're so humorous. I mean, you know, the, the people that seem to be able to find the humor in their story seem to be the ones that really kind of enjoy their recovery the most. Oh, I agree. I agree. I think, I think of with the saying I've heard, I had to do what I had to do until I didn't have to do it anymore. And you know, there's a lot of sayings that when I first came around, I would hear, and they just didn't make any sense. But the more I stuck around, the more I realized it's. I, I think it's one of the few places in the world when you're when you're in recovery and you're talking to other people that are in recovery or at a meeting and somebody sh- can be sharing the most horrific story and the room will be breaking up laughing because yeah. and I, I think it's kind of because we've all been there to some degree or another. Maybe the circumstances might be different, but we've all you know we've all been to the mat with the disease of uh, alcoholism and addiction and. You know, and we see our own, you know, the folly of our own behavior, I guess. And that's, that makes, you know, we just find the human, like, it's crazy part of the human condition, I guess, you know. Well, it's like, it's almost like slapstick. You know, there are some people that think that that's hilarious and other people don't see the humor in it at all. Right. Well, it's like Mel Brooks defined comedy as somebody slipping on a banana peel is funny. If I slip on a banana peel, that's not funny. Right. <laughs> you know, right. So. Right. Yeah. But, uh, I think that's. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Actually, it's like we can. We sometimes we're laughing and we're hearing this horrific story and we go, "Oh, wait a minute! I did that. That's why I recognize that. I identify." You know, of course, no one's called me all day. Now I'm getting phone calls. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you think about um, being on stage and you think about being in comedy clubs, I, I think like I haven't been in a while, but you know, I think about smoky and drinking and and. Uh, 
how how do you stay sober in that kind of environment? Well, uh, I think. You, well, first of all, there's no smoke there anymore. Then that's a good thing because I was never a cigarette smoker. I don't know how I how I dodged that bullet, but I did. I just never smoked cigarettes, and that was something. It never really bothered me that much. But I mean, now in the state of Massachusetts, anyway, you have to smoke outside, so that's a good thing, and a lot of other states too. But uh, the drinking part is kind of, you know, to me, I, I think, I guess I was just done, you know, when I got to the end because I'd be in a club and. I can only think of one time where it really, really seemed like a good idea after I got sober. The thought of having a drink, you know, and it was to celebrate. It wasn't to drown my sorrows by any means. I, I was doing this show. It was out in um, San Diego, and I, it's the only, it's uh, the national TV spot that I did for the A and E network on a show called Comedy on the Road. And I did the show. It went exactly the way I wanted. Crowd was great. I walked up the stage, I cut through the kitchen, they handed me my check, I swung through the other end of the kitchen, came out, and I was standing right in front of the bar. The thought of having a drink right then really sounded, felt like a good idea. I could hear, I could hear myself trying to convince myself in my head, like, now you deserve it, now it's time to have a drink. And it kind of spooked me, I was about six years sober at that point. And that's probably the one and only time where, where I was in a nightclub where I really wanted to, to drink, you know. And I didn't, thank God. <laughs> thank God. Uh, yeah. We'll be right back with uh, George, and if you have any questions, please give us a call. We'll be right back. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, Family Center of Recovery for Co-Occurring Mental Illness and Substance Abuse Disorders. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure, what's up? Um, there's this girl I kind of like. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's women. Really? Well, they didn't call me velvet for nothing. I don't get it. Smooth. I was smooth. Oh. Anyway, it's easy. You just got to impress her. Show her how strong you are. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? I don't know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt, if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, Ugh! Try it. Ugh! Ugh! <laughs> See, there you go. And you should dress up. Start wearing a shirt and tie. I'll look like a dork. No, you'll look successful. Okay. And finally, you can start using my cologne. <clears throat> the ladies love it, so don't be shy. Splash it on. Thanks, Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To find out how you can adopt, please visit our website at adoptuskids.org or call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Janine Marks, a 12-year-old, was fairly normal. She spent a lot of time online. One day, she met a new friend. The new friend had the same problems at home. They liked the same bands. They worried about the same subjects in school. They promised to keep each other's secrets. They wished they went to the same junior high. The new friend had good news. He said he was going to be in Janine's area one Saturday. He thought it would be amazing if they could just hang out, go to the mall. Janine agreed. 
The new friend didn't want parents messing this up. Janine showed up alone. So did her new friend, who wasn't in junior high, wasn't nice, and wasn't a 14-year-old boy. Every day, children are sexually solicited online. Help delete online predators. Call 1-800-THE-LOST or visit cybertipline.com to learn how to protect your kids' online life. A message from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and the Ad Council. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods from Westbridge, and our guest today is George McDonald, who is an accomplished writer, actor, and comedian. And George uh, uses all of his talents um, almost probably every day. Uh, I think it's really important to kind of talk a little bit about the show that uh, Right Turn sponsored um, a couple Sunday nights ago. Yeah, it was November 8th, actually, yeah. 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 Yeah, that was uh that's a show uh Jack Lynch was the host of that show and it was also over comics um and uh, it was for Right Turn a treatment center that's over in Arlington and we did it at the Regent Theater just this past Sunday November 8th. And uh as I was saying that's uh that's a really special show because uh they uh I know I have gone over to uh, Right Turn they have a Thursday night they have an artists in recovery meeting and uh, I really love that meeting because you get a lot of creative people a lot of musicians some comics actors writers uh it's just a really great vibe for a meeting and uh that's how that's the first that's was my first connection with Right Turn and we've done a number of shows at Right Turn itself that's also a, they also have a performance space over there but this was a big show when we did it at the Regent Theater, big 500-seat venue, and uh, it was an absolute ball. It's, it was one of those shows that sort of reminded me of why I wanted to do stand-up in the first place, that, that feeling of connecting with the audience and everybody being on the same page. And, I mean, it's just a tremendous adrenaline rush and, uh, and one of those positive adrenaline rushes. You know, it's a real good thing. And... Uh, in fact, after the show was over, I think I was awake till about four o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep, <laughs> but, oh, wow. but that's a small price to pay. I mean, it was just just a wonderful time, and uh, as well as just that whole, you know, because some of the material that everybody was doing was related to recovery. It's you you are doing service and you giving people this laughter as well, and uh, you know, as and all the folks that I was hanging with, I, I had pretty much worked with everybody in that show before and knew them all well. So, uh, so that was just a ball hang- seeing those folks, you know, the, the cast of, of the show. So, uh, great time, we, yeah. We took some of our folks from Westbridge to it, and one of the guys came back and said that he had a whole new kind of perspective on his recovery because now he could see the humor in it, and he was just all smiles. You know, he was just uh, gave, gave him kind of a whole new way to look at things. So, oh. thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, also too, I think it's important for people to know, and I think. I thought when I first got sober, I said, oh, my God, my life is going to be just this terrible, boring drudgery, and, you know, I'm never going to have a good time again. And I think that's such a fallacy. It's it's such a bill of goods that I had sold myself in my own head that a good time was somehow connected to alcohol and drugs. And I look back on it now, and I realize 
doing the alcohol and drugs over and over again, I kept getting the same results. That's, that was boring. So, you know, my whole frame of reference has been turned around, and I realized it's like, what do I ever need that stuff for now? I look back on it. But I guess I needed it for as long as I needed it. But uh, I think it's, it's, you know, proof positive that you do not need to be high to have a good time, that show. No, no, you certainly don't. Um, I know that there are a few treatment centers that are looking for ways to do fundraising, and um, it seems like a comedy show would be like a no-brainer. Um, yeah, and I'll tell you, I love that audience. I love working for a sober audience because they get every nuance. They're completely paying attention. I don't know if it's from going to meetings and having to listen to people actually speak. There's also nobody hawking drinks while you're on stage, so there are fewer distractions. It's, I love working for sober audiences. It's great. So are you available if, if treatment centers want to contact you? Uh, I'll have to call my agent. Okay, call your agent. Okay. Uh, and how would they how would they get a hold of your agent? Oh, oh, you, oh I thought you were kidding me. Oh, oh no, well, no. yeah. I mean, actually, yeah. There are some folks do. I, you know, I do a lot less comedy than I used to. Uh-huh. Uh So I mean, certain. You know, I'm, I I pick and choose about which ones I do. I mean, I used to be in a club, like I say, six or seven nights a week, and now I do a whole lot less than that. You know, yeah. but. Uh, but uh, uh, I tr- try to s- spread it around a lot to do some acting and do more writing. Uh, and the writing, I think, has become one of the things that that's turned out to be my favorite creative endeavor, if you will. Um, and it, unfortunately, it takes a, a lot more time to sit down and bang out a script. You know that that and get it. And certainly for me to get it the way that I want it, I, I do numerous rewrites. But uh, when it's done, it's it's a pretty pretty powerful thing. There's a script uh, called At the Funny Factory that I wrote that is based pretty much on. Uh, I was one of the comics at the Ding Ho Comedy Club in Cambridge uh, that started back in 1980, I think 1979, 80, something like that. And uh, I based the script on my experiences as a as being a new comic in that in that venue and. Uh, got a play out of it which was which is nice and that play is being sent around right now to a number of different plays. I've had a reading of that play in Los Angeles and here in Boston and uh this new rewrite of the script works pretty well. I'm, I'm actually I think it's I think it's pretty good. I think I get some good results from that. So um so and as I say it's great. It's really satisfying to write something and it's tough to be in the play because it's really number one it's really distracting when you're in the play because if particularly if you write a comedy you're on stage and you're acting with the other actors and somebody says one of the other actors says a line that gets a laugh you almost want to go hey i wrote that you know it just messes with your own concentration i wrote that too hey i wrote that you know so uh it's a lot better i think for me to to write and direct than to write and act in so so what are you currently writing or are you currently directing anything? No, right now I'm working. I'm working on a new play. Uh, uh, I don't have a title on it yet. I just have a topic. But uh, it's a series of it's it's going to be four one act plays that are all connected by monologues and try to do it as a full length, almost do it as a full length show. And it's called In a Better Place. Uh, In a Better Place is the tentative title. That's the title of the first one act, which has been produced actually out in L.A. Um, but. Uh, that's that's the one I'm I'm pretty excited about that one too. That's that's going well. But the going back and rewriting the the Funny Factory was a lot of fun too. And uh, there's a couple of theaters out in L.A. that are interested in that, and we'll see what happens with that. So. 
Where's the best place to do comedy? I mean, is there is there one location that's better than the other, or is it just a sober audience is the best audience? Well, I think a sober audience is the best audience no matter where you are. They do a big show out in L.A. called Yuckaholics that's, uh, that I, I have not done, actually, because when I, I lived out in L.A. for six years, but I sort of got away from comedy around that time, and I was doing, like I say, doing a whole lot less stand-up. And, uh, and I have not done that show, but... Uh, that's a that they do that all, sort of sort of like I'm not really sure how big the venue is. I'm guessing it's about the like the Regent Theater size or 500 seat or bigger. But uh, I'll take a sober audience any day. But as far as what geographic location to start as a comic, I, I have to say I'm a little biased and say Boston because I started in Boston and uh, there was a lot of access to getting on stage and the way it was done in Boston was probably a little different than New York or L.A. or or San Francisco. The comedians, back when I started anyway, in 79, the comedians really had a lot of input as to uh, uh, how the shows ran. And uh, the guy most responsible for that would have been Barry Crimmins because he was the guy that started the Ding Ho Comedy Club. And if you read his book, uh, Never Shake Hands with a War Criminal, he's got a whole chapter that's dedicated to the Ding Ho Comedy Club. Or if you see the documentary, When Stand-Up Stood Out by Fran Salamita, that's all about the Boston comedy scene as it came through that era back in the late 70s and through the 80s and into the 90s um it was a different it was a little bit of a different animal here in boston because we were isolated from the industry so you all you really had to worry about was being funny you didn't have to worry about am i going to get a sitcom out of this is there going to be this talent scout in the audience or or any of that stuff nobody nobody i knew when we were starting was really focusing on that part they were just focusing on how can i be funny and how can i accumulate more funny material so it was pretty single-minded, and I think that's a good thing, actually. Is it still that way? I don't know. I'm, like I say, I'm a little detached from the comedy scene now in Boston. So I know one thing. There are less places to work. There are a lot less places to work, and I think I think it's probably going to be cyclical and sort of at one point it was a real hot thing, and there, you know, there were clubs everywhere popping up and more people becoming comedians, but like everything, you know, it sort of recedes for a while, and then there'll be another explosion probably five or ten years from now. There are some great places to work, like the Hong Kong over in Cambridge. That's a great place to work. Um, there's uh, uh, I'm trying, you know, Again, like I say, I'm a little out of the loop, so I don't really... Um, my favorite place to work is Right Turn. Actually, when we do the shows over there, actually at the treatment center, we do, as well as the Regent, we do them actually at Right Turn because there is a performance space, like I say. So that's the one that I like to work at. Um, but... Uh, other than that, I'm not really quite sure what would be around. Um, you know, when I think about, like, uh, famous comedians who become actors, a lot of them are really good at drama. Yeah. And and when I look at think about some dramatic actors, they cannot do comedy. Yeah. So what, what is it? Why why can comedians do kind of dig down and get the drama, but it doesn't work the other way? I think that's, uh, you know... A guy that actually talked about is a Boston comic who actually lives in L.A. right now, Barry Nightkrug, and I, th- I think he really put it best. He said, you have to know, in order to know it's funny, you have to know it's serious. And I think that's really true. So to go from funny, like to, to go from being, and actually that was exactly my transition. I started up, my first time on stage, I worked as a stand-up comic. You know, I, I did, I only had five minutes, it was an open mic night, but I, that was my first experience being up on stage. And after doing that for about two years, um, I got. I was always interested in being an actor, but you know, I had no 
and it turned out somebody was casting a, a play, Arsenic and Old Lace, a production of Arsenic and Old Lace, and they wanted me to be in the play. And I balked. I said no. But the the guy, I, I he was a friend of mine and a co-worker at the time. I had still had a day job at that time. And he, he said, no, no, I'll walk you through it. You're, you know, I've, I've seen you do stand-up, and I've seen you do some of these uh, role-playing things that we had to do for work for the day job. And he said, you'll definitely be able to do this. I'll walk you through it. Don't worry. I'll get you back. I'll, and, and he did. And what was, you know, and it was... I think it's a, it's a more logical transition. Okay. And we'll be right back with George McDonald. If you have any questions, please call in. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family sense of recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. This is an important programming note from the Voice America Women's Channel. The Catherine Zox Show is moving. Our new address is Voice America, and we will be heard on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, starting Wednesday, November 19th. All of the archives will still be available through Catherine's Boombox Player. Remember, tune in to the Catherine Zox Show on Wednesdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern, beginning on Wednesday, November 19th, on Voice America's flagship Voice America Channel. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is One Hour at a Time, and I'm Mary Woods, and today our guest is George McDonald, who is an accomplished writer, actor, and comedian, and it's really important to note that George has over 23 years of recovery. Um, before we were... Went in a row. In a row. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's even better. Yeah. Yeah. Go figure. <laughs> yeah. Talk about miracles, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, before we went to uh, break, you were talking. We were talking a little bit about how um, it's sometimes easier for comedians to do drama than than for people who are good at drama to do comedy. And um, I'm wondering about like some of the the folks that you've worked with. Um, there, there's kind of a high rate of uh, alcoholism among comedians or drug addiction. I, I, I'm not going to uh, say them out loud, but on the back of your photo, you have the folks that you've worked with. And right, right. There, there's a good self-help group right here. <laughs> <laughs> 
That's true. Well, there are other, there are other obsessions too, besides alcohol and drugs. That you, you know, I mean, I, I think show business does not attract the most stable people in the world because you figure, why would you need the approval of a room full of strangers? Who would who would need that? <laughs> you know, which is really kind of what you're doing if you're getting up on stage, to some degree or another. But there are guys. You know, case in point, two guys that right off the top of my head that I've worked with that have no interest whatsoever in alcohol and drugs would be Jay Leno and Jerry Seinfeld. Those guys, that was never their trip, you know. Uh, by the same token, I've also worked with Sam Kennison, and we, his story's pretty public, you know. Yeah. But I only work with him once or twice, but, you know, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think because it's the nightclub business, you know, I mean, it's, it's everything you would want to, to act out with is readily available and, as I always say, it's like once I came off stage and they paid me, <laughs> and the bar was open. Hey, I wasn't leaving. <laughs> you know, I was I was in for the long ride at that point. So, and I think that's that's probably true for a lot of people. You know. Yeah, so it's probably the environment that attracts the people as opposed to the people. Yeah, I think it ends up becomes a self fulfilling prophecy to some point. You know, I go wait a minute, you're going to pay me to do this? Is going to be my job? You know, and and then if you're lucky like me, you get sick and tired of being sick and tired, and you know. The job it starts to turn on you after a while. The kid in the candy store kind of thing, and after a while you start going like, "Oh my God, this is actually becoming work. This is it's work to to stay high seven days a week." And and how come I have no money? What did I spend it all on? You know, I mean. So after a while, you know, you it, if you're lucky, like I say, and you know, it, you get the gift of sobriety, and you go like, "Okay, I'm not doing that anymore." So certainly that was my game plan. <laughs> um. So. When you're thinking about like uh, what you're doing today, you're, you're writing. You're mm-hmm. doing more writing than anything else. When we were in break, you were almost said it was like it was channeled. Your writing almost feels like it's channeled. Can you talk I, a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I think I think in the, the best case scenario, it, it almost does feel like taking dictation because uh, you know things will come up as you're writing these. And I prefer to, I like to write I write plays and screenplays, mm-hmm. and. Um, the plays in particular, because plays are so dialogue-driven, and movies are obviously image-driven, uh, you know, picture-driven, um, you can write... I'll start writing a, a scene with with actors in it, and stuff starts coming from uh, things that I didn't plan, and it really is almost like... If you really... You know, I guess it was George Bernard Shaw who said... They asked him, how do you write a play? And he said, I get the characters talking, and I try to stay out of the way. And I think that's really true. It's like when you really get in a good groove with it, it's like taking dictation. It moves that fast. And there was one play, actually the play that I was talking about earlier, in a better place. I wrote the first draft of that from beginning to end, and it was like twenty. It's a one-act play, and I wrote it like twenty pages right through the whole thing. And I had to go back and fine-tune it here and there, and tweak a line, and change this, and change that. But pretty much that play was written in one sitting, right through, like as if those two guys were right in the room with me, and I just wrote down what they said. So that's the best case scenario, and it's not always like that. Unfortunately, it would be great if it was. What's the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario is you know there's something wrong, and you keep rewriting it, and it doesn't seem to be getting any better. I guess that's the worst case scenario. Or you put it up on stage, and and I tend obviously I tend to write. I mean, I'm more prone to writing comedies, so you put the comedy up, and it's not funny. Or you like I say, what always sort of gets me is when I say I know this is in the right line. But I have no idea what else to put in there at this point in time. And very often, what you do is you take the script, put it down for a month, two months, six months, whatever, come back to it, and you can see it with a fresh perspective. And you look at it and you realize, oh, what was I thinking? That that's not the, that. This is what the line should be, and it'll come right to you. It just just comes right into your head. And uh, 
as Barry Crimmins, who's also a great writer, a great writer and a great comedian, he he put it best. When he said to me, uh, he goes, "Yeah, you get snowblind, and that's really a great way to look up to put it because." Sometimes you're so close to the play, you can't see what needs to be changed. You're just too close to it, and you need to get some distance, and you can get that by putting the, putting the thing down and not looking at it for a while. How do you go about shopping a play once you write it? I mean, how do you make it? Uh, it was kind of funny. I mean, the first play that I wrote, uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time, her sister worked as the, the manager of a place that did uh, at Mummakin over on Lansdowne Street in Boston. And upstairs from Mummakin, they had the Lansdowne Street Playhouse, and they would do script readings and productions, mostly musicals, because it was a musical venue. And I, I didn't know what to do with the play after I wrote it. And I wrote it, and I said, all right, I knew I had to write this thing, but I'm not really sure what I'm going to do with it now. And it was a pretty, you know, her sister said, well, why don't you do a reading over here? And, you know, I did the reading, and then it was, they said, well, we'd like to do a production of that. I I had no idea how how almost impossible that is to have happen first time out of the shoot, you know, for something like that to to sort of click like that. And it, I, you know, and I don't want to minimize how much work was involved in actually making it happen, but but very often you might write something and it might sit on sit for years before anybody wants to do it. Uh, there are ways you can, you know, I'm a member of the Dramatist Guild, which is the Playwrights Union, and they have a resource directory, and they have a whole listing of theaters that, and what they're looking for, comedies, dramas, whatever, you know, you send them a 10-page sample, then they, some of them want the whole script, and, uh, and it's, uh, you know, it's a waiting game, you just throw it out there and see what happens to some, or you can always produce it yourself, I've done that too, you know, just, just raise the money yourself, find a venue, rent a theater, you know, hire some actors, put it up, you know, that's, that's another way of doing it. I like that way because you get to be in charge. But if it doesn't work, then you get to take all the blame, too. So that's the other side of it. Um, what do you think is the uh, the best thing about um, being in recovery for you? I, I think uh, being comfortable in my own skin. When I hear people say that at meetings, uh, that's totally, totally true in my case. I mean, I, I can remember, you know, even as a comic, walking into a club, you know, 400 people, whatever, and I would immediately go to the bar and have to fire down a couple of drinks just to feel even remotely normal, just to even feel like I could stand around and be in the presence of anybody. Um, you know, I didn't have that walking down the street, you know, but um, I think what I have now is I don't. it doesn't really matter where I go. I'm totally comfortable with myself. Uh, and, I, and that's definitely from program, and that's definitely from all aspects of program, doing service, you know, sponsoring people, working the steps, doing all of the above, doing, you know, being amenable to su- the suggestions that were sort of put out to me, which I wasn't when I first came around. It took me a while. It was a, it was a slow process, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad that I did finally come around and um, sort of take some suggestions and, you know, do all of the above because uh, just being – being comfortable in your own skin, that alone, if nothing else ever happened, it's worth it just for that reason alone. Um, well, when you were talking earlier about uh, being like out in L.A. Mm-hmm. and then being in Boston, um, I, I cannot think of two more totally different cultures. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love Los Angeles. I'll say that. I, I, I have some the best friends in the world I have here. 
I have some terrific friends out in L.A. too. Don't get me wrong, and I love. I was one of those people that it didn't. You know, some people go out to Los Angeles from the East Coast and they never like it and whatever. I liked it immediately, and I think a lot of that has to do with. I absolutely hate the winter. I hate cold weather. I always have ever since I was a kid. So, to be in a to be in a climate that never gets colder than like fifty degrees, that works for me <laughs> you know, on a lot of levels. I mean, uh, it's a great place. I mean. In that sense, um, to uh, to uh, some people, I think don't like it because of the business, the, the show business, particularly people in, that are in the show business uh, industry. A lot of people don't like the aspect of the showbiz industry out there because everybody's in it. You can't get away from it. And some people don't like that. I don't really have a problem with that. Uh, I found the meetings out there to be pretty, really great. And uh, I also think it kind of right-sized a whole lot of that showbiz stuff for me because I was one of those kids that got into into the industry because I thought, wow, if I were rich and famous and if I had all this money and I had all this fame, then everything would be okay. You know, again, looking to be comfortable in my own skin. And you go to meetings out there and you see people that have that, that are just trying to get through the day and stay sober. And it really right-sizes a lot of that, that outside stuff. And, you know, it really does let you know for sure that it's an inside job because you're not going to find people that are more successful than out there. You know, I mean, somebody's you know, living that Hollywood dream, and they got all this money, and they got all these accolades, and yet they, you know, they still don't know if they're going to make it through the day. That that sort of, you know, that's pretty plain to me that uh, it ain't about the stuff. It's got to be about. It's got to be an inside job, like they have always said in, in, in programs. Right, right. Um, yeah, and I think that sometimes, uh, I mean, I I can still. We worked with folks in early recovery at Westbridge, and, you know, oftentimes you'll hear people say, well, you know, when I just get the right job, you know, things are going to be better when I just get the right job, right? Just get the right partner, you know? And um, and so they spend, you know, two years looking for the right job or the right partner, and they don't understand why they still have the hole in their soul. Right, uh, right. And it's so hard to be able to uh, communicate to somebody that, you know, it's really about what's inside. Yeah, and I think, too, it's like, you know, I think until somebody, there's a lot of people that just, for whatever reason, aren't ready to believe that. You know, I I think most people are probably capable of believing that. Maybe some aren't, but, but I think... It's a it's a readiness thing. It's if you're always chasing that brass ring, and you know, you know, it's like the dog chasing the car. When you catch it, what are you going to do with it? You know, I mean, it's it's sort of sort of like that uh, that type of uh, uh, paradox. It's like because I honestly have seen people at meetings out in L.A. that have Academy Awards and what have you, and, and like I say, all of the stuff you could ever possibly want to have to, to be able to say you have a successful show business career. And they're hanging on by their fingernails. They're like maybe suicidal, maybe whatever. Just or, or can't stop using and abusing alcohol and drugs. So, so as somebody said it to me in program, they said if it was just about money and power and all those accolades, then rich people would never commit suicide. And as we know, that happens all the time. You know? Right, 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 right. Um, was there anything that, in growing up? Do you think in in uh, Southie that uh, was a hindrance to you becoming a comedian? Oh no! I, well, I mean, I was very lucky because I, well, I think it's kind of uh, I'm an aberration in the sense that the the guys I grew up with, the the, the corner full of guys that I hung around with, I, many of them were infinitely more funny than I'll ever be. But they just had no desire whatsoever to be comedians on stage. But they were really funny. I was just trying to keep my head above water with them, so it was a great training ground. Yeah. And we'll be right back for our final segment with George McDonald. If you have any questions, give us a call. We'll be right back. 
A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh, uh, there you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt US Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. Ever seen a hornet, Shelly? No, ma'am. Oh, well, you're five. What are you waiting for? They've built a nest outside your window. See? No. You will when you climb 15 feet up this ladder to get rid of them. Take this insecticide and broom <laughs> and send those stinging meanies packing. What if I fall? I could get hurt. Oh, you know about gravity already. You're so smart. Oh, go, 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 go. The hornets are waiting. Uh, shoot! Get away! Scream at them, dear hornets. Hey, I pitch noises. Yeah, uh, try not to swallow too many. Get away! Knock that nest out of the park. You wouldn't treat your child like an adult. So why put them in adult seatbelts? If they're under four foot nine, they need a booster seat. I can't see! Are they biting me? Oh, that's so cute. No, honey, hornets don't bite, silly. They sting. Ow! For more information, go to boosterseat.gov. This message brought to you by the Ad Council and the U.S. Department of Transportation. When I found out my jeans were made using child labor in sweatshops, I wrote a letter to the company saying, reconsider your labor practices. A few months later, I get a letter back saying, thanks for being a loyal customer, and they included a coupon for a 25% discount on their jeans. So I got smart, wrote letters every day to all the stores that carry the brand, asking them to stop supporting the companies who use child labor in sweatshops. And I just kept getting letters back, thanking me for my concerns, and more coupons for more discounts on more jeans. So I'm telling my friend about it, and she flips out, saying that between all the letters and coupons, some paper company cut down a small forest, driving off two indigenous tribes, hundreds of endangered animals, killing thousands of plant species, some of which may have contained vaccines for HIV, cancer, and syphilis. Meanwhile, the guys cutting down the trees are 13-year-old kids who work night and day for months just to save up enough money to buy a pair of jeans made by child labor in sweatshops. Saving the world isn't easy, but saving a life is. Just one pint of blood can save up to three lives. Visit bloodsaves.com to learn more. This public service announcement was brought to you by the Ad Council. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family center recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is George McDonald. And um, I... 
think it's really great that you've been able to maintain your recovery for 23 years in an environment that isn't always conducive to uh, being sober. I know when I first started working in this profession, you know, people who were creative were basically told, well, you know, you really can't go back on the road or you're not going to be able to stay sober if you go back and work in a bar. And there was a lot of, um, I think, in some ways, just cutting people off from the things that makes them who they are, their whole creativity. And um, it's just I'm glad you're able to say that, you know, you can go back and, and do your creative thing and stay sober. It's, it's good. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think, too, if uh, one of the things that was real, two, well, there are two things that were really helpful for me in early sobriety working in that in that environment. One of them was if I had to work in that environment, and very often, like, I worked six nights a week, roughly, sometimes seven, I made it a point to go to a meeting that day, as they refer to it in the big book as taking out an insurance policy. And I think that's really true. I, if I was going to be around people that were drinking and drugging, I had to be around people that were trying to stay sober, too. So it just sort of seemed to be, a, you know, at least break even that way. And the other thing, it was a simple thing. No one told me to do this. I don't know how I knew how to do this. But when I was in the club in early sobriety, uh, the first thing I would do after my show was over, and I never drank before the show. I, I almost, you know, I, I would drink a little bit, you know, just like maintenance drinking, but I never did the power drinking really kicked in after my work was done. That's when the real heavy-duty stuff started. So it was kind of easy for me in the beginning to not drink when I was doing a show and just focus on doing the show. And the very first thing I would do when I was done was put my coat on because if I lingered, sometimes I could, sometimes I couldn't. But I knew if I left, I was never sorry that I left. And, I, you know, if I if I stuck around, that sometimes when it could get a little uncomfortable. And, and that was the thing. I don't know how I knew to do that, but, you know, I put that coat on, and uh, it saved me on more than one occasion. Just walk out the door. <laughs> Do you do you use your own experience for your for when you're doing jokes or writing, or do you draw on what you hear from other people? Uh, a lot of it's, I think. Well, I think that you know they say all writing is autobiographical, and definitely that's true. With when I write plays and stuff, uh, I tend to write about things that I've either, in some way, shape, or form, either directly or indirectly, have experienced, and I think that's some of the stuff that that works best. But uh, you know, I'm, my particular stuff is not i'm not like what i would call a topical comic i mean i'm not doing i mean maybe if a news story a particular story grabs me i might have a joke or two about that or a particular commercial on tv that seems to be played you know to death <laughs> i might have a commercial i might have a joke about that or some tv show that i find particularly silly but for the most part i would i always try to write about more general topics like relationships you know marriage uh uh, you know, actually, you know, recovery. I mean, that's a big topic for me, obviously. Uh, stuff like that that I that I knew that I could fine tune and work on it, and over and over again, try to make it better. And you know, and you end up coming up with new lines that you can tag with, particularly if you're talking about you know relationships or marriage or you know whatever. I mean, that's that topic is always going to be usable. It's not going to be like a news story that's you know once it's a week old. Okay, that joke's a great joke, but it's no good anymore. Uh, and you know. I'm, I'm probably more lazy than topical comics. I guess that's what I'm saying. So, do you draw on things you hear, you hear from, you hear about, or? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, like for example, I mean the. Uh, uh, Given of, of the plays, the, the first play that I wrote, "Waiting for Whitey," was sort of based on uh, the, the neighborhood I grew up in. Uh, the play at the Funny Factory is based on my experience as a comic back at the Ding Ho. 
um, in a better place. That one act play is based on. Uh, is so I, sh- I shouldn't say based. That's probably the wrong word. Is inspired by. Uh, you know, uh, the 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 setting for that play is two guys at a wake talking about the guy that passed away, and they realize that they both they both knew a different guy. You know, so uh, I've actually experienced that firsthand. Um, the other play, Whistling Past the Graveyard, is uh, two women at work talking about their own mortality and sort of, you know, the, pondering the bigger questions and, you know, who hasn't done that? Uh, and I picked, I used, uh, actually, that was a perfect case of, of the play actually coming on like dictation. I, uh, Dorothy Dwyer and Margaret Ann Brady, two women that are actors and comedians in Boston that I know, I pictured the two of them sitting down having this conversation. And, again, that play almost wrote itself from beginning to end in the first sitting. You know, it took a while. That took a little bit more work, but that you know, it, it's a whole lot easier if I can picture somebody I know actually having that experience. It sort of m- makes the thing move along a lot faster. And a little uh, black humor thrown in. Oh, a lot of gallows humor. I mean, I'm definitely that's. <laughs> well, comedians, I think there's nothing funnier. Certainly, I guess I should speak for myself. As a comedian, there was nothing funnier to me on stage than another comedian up on stage bombing. Yeah. And most comedians find that hilarious because, uh, I guess because you're looking at that and you've been there yourself and you're looking at that and you go like, well, it's not my turn tonight. It's that guy's turn or that woman's turn. And, you know, I, that's, if that's not gallows humor, I guess, I don't you know, it's like any one of us is next, you know. So. I know, um, I grew up in an Irish Catholic family, and um, some of the best times I remember growing up were at Wake. Oh yeah, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's. I guess it's just a way of coping. Well, yeah, absolutely. Well, they say, you know, it's anger. Comedy is anger turned inside out, and or it could be disappointment turned inside out. You know, I mean, case in point, as a comic, I was at. I was at the hospital and a friend of mine was passing away and the doctor was came in and basically delivered the news to everybody how bad it was, how horrible the news, and this is a true story, how horrible the news was just how bleak and it's, you know, this person's basically, you know, hanging on by their, they're almost out of here. And, and he said, are there any questions? And my first thought, I didn't say it, but my first thought as a comic was like, yes, do you validate parking? And I know I would have got a laugh, but it probably would have pissed off the surviving family members, so I didn't say it, you know. But uh, it's like that's the gallows humor. I think it's a coping mechanism is very often where my head goes almost immediately, you know. Yeah. And as a comedian, too. I mean, it's like trying to get a laugh in the most horrific situation. So, so if, if somebody's out there and they're uh, listening and they're early in recovery and they want they're either starting a career as a comedian or they would like to be a comedian do you have any suggestions for somebody in early recovery um well i would just say it's it's sort of like use the principles that you learned in recovery and apply those to uh, uh to your to your profession you know or to, to you know and then that probably is, would be true for stand-up or anything else you know i mean if you suit up and show up and just keep doing what you're doing i mean you'll get what you're supposed to get out of it i think that's really true uh I, I think one of the things that has really helped me career-wise is recovery because when I got those sort of the, those principles, I, I did apply them, and that's how I wrote those plays. I mean, just from keep showing up at the page. In our last minute, is there any place that you're going to be playing or any of your uh, plays that are going to be available for us to go see? 
Uh, next February, I have a big show that we do at the Paraclete Center in South Boston. It's a fundraiser to, to keep that place going, and uh, we have some great guys in that show. Joe Carroll, uh, Ken Rogerson, Jack Lynch, they're always regulars, Tony V, Bob Seibel. Uh, good folks, and it's a great show. That's at the Paraclete Center in South Boston in February. And if people want to uh, learn more about you, do you have a website? Uh, no, I don't, actually. I'm, I'm a Luddite. I, I can barely operate a cell phone. I'm lucky. <laughs> I'm lucky if I, if I can get my computer started without directions. So. I, you know, you get a prize. You're our first <laughs> guest that doesn't have a website. So. <laughs> <laughs> George, it's been a pleasure talking with you this afternoon, and uh, congratulations on all your achievements, and keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much, Mary. Thanks for having me. Have a good week, everyone. Appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.